0: invite you to turn to Joshua chapter 10. As you're turning there, just a couple different things I want to let you know about. There will be some more time for uh, worship here at the the back end of the service. Um, just so you know that, uh, I think we were just getting in um, into it. Thanks, team. Uh, tonight, uh, Brian... Campbell is going to be leading just a time of worship here at uh, six o'clock here in, in the in this room. Um, Brian Campbell is the uh, worship uh, candidate that we've been bring, that we're bringing in, and uh, he's going to be leading worship actually with the team here. And uh, so, I encourage you to come on out if you'd like to meet him and hear hear his heart. Uh, we're pretty excited about this and just what God seems to be doing. Um, and how he uh, seems to be doing this partnership and pulling us together. So I uh, encourage you, if you can, to come on out. It be at 6 o'clock tonight. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's, that's uh, kind of where we are. I had a, a verse. Uh, somebody asked me, where, you know, how are we getting into the building? And uh, I wish I could say a time. Somebody showed me a passage in Isaiah a couple months ago, somebody showed me one that said, hey, it took them 20 years to build the thing, and then somebody else just showed me a passage to, uh, this past week that said they had a six-year delay in their construction project, if you look in Ezra, and I'm like, six years of delays, how about that? Um, so we're we're at six months maybe right now, we're not doing too bad, six years. Um, so we don't know, God God will show us here soon. Um, but uh, keep hanging on, keep praying for it. If you want to pray for one thing, um, pray for this. We have, there are four doors that literally could hold up this whole project uh, from getting past and uh, they're big fire doors and the company that we're working with, um, they just haven't been exactly uh, the sharpest uh, tool in the tool shed, let me just put it that way. and. Um, Have messed up a lot of different things on this order so now they're delaying on these and they're dragging their feet on these doors and we got to get these things in so if you want to pray spiritual warfare prayers on them if you want to pray prayers of blessing on them if you want to i don't fast pray we need to pray that these doors come in now whether they come in through that company or a different company we're not sure but we have to get these doors in and obviously these kind of doors are custom made and they take time So this could end up postponing it. And uh, if you want to pray about one thing, that would be it. Um, Get those doors uh, here. So, um, yeah, Uh, Joshua chapter 10, I do need to make an apology. I heard from a lot of you this past week how I have ruined the phrase, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, How many people noticed it this past week? I had people coming up, yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, here's, uh, here's the thing we were talking about in the office, kind of laughing about it. We thought, well, what, you know, what's this message, what's the passage for this week? And, uh, so this passage this week is actually the exact opposite of what had happened in chapter nine. So we thought, well, let's just make, have some fun with it. And the title of the message will be, no, 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 you got it. And, uh, so it all works. So if you weren't part of last week, uh, last week's message was the Israelites in chapter nine didn't Consult God. They just kind of told God, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, I, I got this," and they just did it on their own, and it ended up turning into something that God really didn't want for them. But He redeems it. This week, Israel comes, and they they just kind of say, "Okay, no, no, you got this, God," and uh, and we'll see how this all plays out here this morning. Um, so we start with the story, Joshua chapter ten, verse one, and it says, "As soon as." Adonai Zedda, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and devote, had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai and all of its men were warriors." So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem. Oh, by the way, first appearance of Jerusalem in the Bible is this passage right here, so just a little FYI. Um, Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoam, king of Hebron, to Piram, king of Jarmuth, to Japhia, king of Lachish, and to Debir, king of Eglon, which I may have slaughtered all those names, so I don't claim to know how to pronounce them. Come up to me and help me. Let us strike Gibeon, for it's made peace with Joshua and all the people of Israel. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jermu, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon, gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. Up on the screen is a map, and uh, it's a map of the conquest of the land uh, we would call now Israel. And Israel came up from the lower right hand, which would be the south, come up from the wilderness. And then that big lake there is called the Dead Sea. You got the Mediterranean, that's obviously the Great Sea here. So you have the Dead Sea, that's the the lake up on the lower part here. And you see that red arrow, that first one that's going like that. That's where the Jordan River is. So they cross in right there. And the first city, it's on that red arrow, is actually, you can't see it, but that is Jericho, right there at the top of the Dead Sea. They conquer Jericho. A couple miles in, they conquer Ai. And that's if you want to know how this happens, this is why everybody's scared who's coming in, because Israel has is effectively just cut off north and south traffic. Now, if you go to the next slide, this shows you now where we are, and they're going to conquer the southern kingdom first. Chapter 10 and 11 are about the southern kingdoms. Chapter 11 and 12 is about conquering the northern kingdoms. So what we see here is the blue, if you look for the the pink circles, there's five of them, right? You see Jerusalem, that's one. Hebron, I wish I had a little laser pointer thingy. Uh, and if Yeah, Hebron is right there in the middle. And then you go to your left, you have Eglon, and you've got Lachish. And then the other one, you can barely see it because it's got purple and red lines and blue lines on it. But that's Jarmuth up there or whatever that other city was, that fifth one. So Jerusalem, if you look at it, Gibeah is up about 11 o'clock, if you want to think of a clock. Gibeon's right up there. They're only 10 miles away from Jerusalem. So the king of Jerusalem is freaking out because they're 10 miles away. So he sends messengers down to the other Amorite kings down lower southeast and says, look, we got to do something about this. Let's rally our troops together. Let's go make Gibeon pay because they just betrayed us by joining the Israelites. And the Israelites aren't there right now. They went back to their camp. Does that all make sense? It helps me understand just where everything flows in terms of the map. So these aren't just like names out there and It's disembodied, it actually hopefully gives you an idea of what's going to happen here. So this is a whole mountainous region. If you look at the purple right there, that's a whole mountainous region, back and forth, all that. The mountains go north and south. Um, And so it's important to understand that there's mountains on this because it comes into play later on in the story. So they get all their armies together and they're gonna destroy Gibeon and they surround Gibeon and they're encamped against it in verse, at the end of verse five. Verse six, and the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal, which is back towards the east, towards the Jordan River. Uh, You can see it, it's right next to Jericho there. Um, So they're back there about uh, 15, 20 miles away and they said, hey, do not relax your hand, uh, other texts say. Don't abandon your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us for all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. Stop right there for a second. The Gibeons are surrounded by the Amorites. It's not a good, or they see them come and able to get out a message to Israel saying, hey, look, we're about ready to be destroyed. You gotta come and, and save us. And it's interesting, as you look at the covenant that they made with Israel last week when we were looking in chapter 9, we knew it was a covenant where Israel said, look, we won't destroy you. That's part of the promise here. Part of the covenant was, you will be our servants. And we understood that. They would serve Israel. But this is interesting here because it wasn't mentioned in the previous chapter. But here we realize that the covenant also included protection. So Israel, who was just an enemy of these people a week ago, now has to go and fight and protect them and and risk their own people. And, And it's different this time because as Israel has gone out, there's a real question now. Will, I mean, as Gibeon has gone out, now is surrounded, will Israel stay true to the covenant because it's more than just words. Now you're talking about blood. And verse 7 says, So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And it may just seem like a little tiny, okay, they they went, but it's bigger than that. They honored the covenant. And it's interesting, they don't have to consult God right now because they already made the covenant. God's name's a part of this. They made the deal, protect these people. It's clear. They have to go. And what's difficult this time is that it's not just Israel against a city, it's Israel against five different tribes who've brought up all their armies. It's it's a five to one against kind of thing. The odds aren't good. Not only that, militarily speaking, uh, they have to come into the ground that's already been taken. So it's not going to be an easy battle. The other enemy has had time to set up and, and prepare for a siege and possibly Think about being attacked by Israel from the east. And so they march. And it's into these these moments here where God, in verse 8, talks. After several chapters of being quiet, God talks. And he comes to Joshua and he says, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. It's the theme of Joshua, right? Do not be afraid. Was Joshua afraid? Might have thought about it. Was Israel afraid? Might be seriously thinking about it. I mean, it's shaping up to be one of the biggest battles they've ever fought. Somebody's gonna die. It's not this nice battle Better roses and all easy. This is a scary moment here because it's it's such a big battle and so much hangs in the balance. Five tribes assembled. If Israel fails to win that war, Gibeon is lost. If Gibeon is lost, Israel's retreating and their own people are threatened by the attacks from these tribes. There's a lot on the line. What's interesting is that as faithful as Israel now is to the covenant, to Gibeon. <clears throat> God comes along and he says this. And In verse eight, he says it, I've read it once, but he says, do not fear them, for I've given you into your hands. If you remember back Joshua chapter one, this is what he said at the very beginning, just 10 chapters earlier, nine chapters earlier. Moses, my servant, is dead. He's saying this to Aaron. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, the river there, you and all this people into the land that I'm giving to them, the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you, just as I promised Moses, from the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea or the Mediterranean, toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. You shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you, be strong, courageous, do not be scared, do not be frightened, do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. If Israel can be faithful to a covenant, surely God can be more faithful. And I love this moment because it's like God came and whispered to Joshua, I got this. I got this. I got you. I got Israel. I got this. Don't be afraid. I'm going to give him into your hand. It's in the... The moments, you know, we just sing this song um, about the whole experience of life in the good and in the bad, and God comes faithful forever, right? Um even what the enemy meant for evil, you turn it for good. I mean, there's this promise that God says, I have you in the middle of everything. And the test of our faith is in the middle of those moments when we're afraid and when we're scared and when anxiety goes through our veins and it feels virtually impossible to stop that train. Once it gets going, God comes in and he starts to whisper, I got this. In verse 8, Joshua came and he actually said, Joshua marched, it came on them suddenly having marched up all night from Gilgal. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Horon and struck them as far as Ezekah and Makeda, and they say fled before Israel. While they were going down the ascent of Beth Horon, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Ezekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hellstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord and in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, this is in front of all of Israel, sun stands still at Gibeon and moon in the valley of uh, Aizalon, I think is how you say it, and the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There's been no day like it before or since when the Lord Heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. God comes and whispers to Joshua and says, I I have this. You're going to win. And and the question is, when did Joshua speak in front of all of Israel? Was it in that moment? He was either there or right before the battle. But out of obedience and out of faith, he leads this army out. And that's hard. You're marching all night long. It's hard to march at night it's difficult nothing it nothing is easy when you're marching at night especially into a battle of five armies assembled against you and you have an army that you're trying to say hey we've got to do this and there's still a bitter taste in their mouth about how this whole covenant thing went down and they got deceived and lied into this thing and so it's it's not an easy team army to lead into battle and they follow Joshua, and at some point, whether it's before they leave or after they leave, he makes this prayer. The sun stands still. And as they get there, God shows up, throws the armies into confusion. It's a rout um, turned into just chaos and a retreat that was unorganized the whole way. And it talks about this first retreat of the ascent to beth Horon, and and. And if you could see the map, Beth Haran is just a slow grade up. And it goes up, up, up to Beth Haran, which is a city on top of a hill. And what happens at the top of the hill is interesting because it's a steep precipice, you can go down it, but you can look for miles and miles on end. And there's actually a picture here, this is one author's rendering of it, it doesn't look nearly anything like it, but I thought, that's eh, cool looking. Ah, It's a piece of art. It's classical art or something like that. But could you imagine, this is what happens. They go up the ascent. They're chasing after him. When they get to the top of Beth Haran, they look over, and what they see are dead bodies everywhere and large hailstones everywhere. And can you imagine the army of Israel at that point, what they're seeing and what they're thinking? There's more people who died by the hailstones than died by the sword that day. And they're looking out over this thing and they're going, God's got this. They're in the middle of the battle, and they're going, God's got this. The armies, all five, are in panic and being destroyed. God's got this. God's got this. And I, I think it's one of those scenes where then it says they just go after them. I think it, they realized in that moment they put it together and the chase was on and they were going to destroy all five armies in one day. And they went for it. Not because of their own confidence, but because they were filled with faith. God had it. God was going to do it. You ever been in those moments in life where the wind is at your back because you see God moving? You know, in, in the Olympics, they have such a thing as wind-aided, is a little asterisk by races that have as a, um, I would say as, as probably something that needs to be noted when a race is happening and there's a strong wind, a headwind, or as it were, wherever, it is a tailwind. If it is too strong, they will put an asterisk in there because it affects the speed and the time of races. An athlete with a tailwind can run faster. And if you've ever done any outdoor running, you know what it's like, and all of us have. Try to run into a strong headwind, and it's impossible. You feel it on the airplanes. You ever had an airplane that's gotten into the trade winds or whatever, the jet stream, and it's just... It's faster going one direction, and it's longer going the other direction. This is one of those moments where Israel was in the jet stream, and they understood God had it, and they just took off and won the battle. And then Joshua, in the middle of this, it's almost like they they get to the end, and you see how the battle's going, and they win. But then there's this insertion of verse 12 through 14, where you find this prayer that Joshua prayed at the beginning of the day. And it's a quote, actually, from this book of poems by this guy named Bashar, is my understanding. And it's a poems and stories of famous Israelite heroes, and one of them is Joshua, and they have in that book uh, this prayer that Joshua prayed. And Joshua prays this prayer, and it's a quote, this is the prayer that he, said, he prayed, sun stands still at Gibeon and moon in the valley of Ahazelon. And this past week, I mean, I, I love this passage, this past week, I've never really studied it, and uh, man, I run into a buzzsaw. This is like a really controversial passage, which I was like, "Well, that's a bummer." I really like this passage. Why is everybody so angry? Um, there's all kinds of theories about how do you explain this, and this is a classic passage. I've never heard an atheist that knew this, but there's a class. This is a classic passage that atheists come to and they point to and say, "See, the Bible is just." filled with mythical stories that's all this is It's fantastical stories because there's no way the earth could stand still or the sun could stand still because if the sun stands still that means the earth has stopped rotating which means there's no gravity which means everybody floats off the face of the planet into space the bible is fantastic That's how they would approach it. There's some Christians who would come and try to explain this, and and there's different ideas. There's one guy, I think, out of Harvard, a professor, that looked at the world calendar and did all this math and came up with this, this, um, from his point of view, wrote a whole book on it, that there's actually a day missing in the world calendar. And he went on to, to prove all these different things, and he says, and it's from this passage. The earth stood still. This is where that missing day is. There's other very strong Christians who I respect who look at it and go, "It seems good." There's some holes in the logic. It doesn't totally, totally work out, but it seems like a strong case, is how they would put it. But um, wouldn't die for it. And then there's other Christians, uh, you know, that come along and 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 they just say, "Ah, probably where I am." <laughs> um, how do you view this thing, and what do you do? Um, I think one of the things to understand as you come to a passage like this is, look, I'm not here to try to satisfy the scientific community. I'm not. Um, Especially someone who's coming from a naturalistic, postmodern mindset where there is no absolute and there is no truth. Um, And if somebody wanted to talk to me about a passage like this, I would just kind of go, can we do a timeout? Can we, like, backtrack over to Genesis 1? Let's start there. What do you believe about the origins of everything? Because what you believe about the origins will impact what you believe here. And if you believe there is a creator God who spoke this all into existence, then this seems very possible. Now, I'm not sure how God did it. It doesn't say. It just says, look, that day went long, and they were able to fight. Some have this theory that it could have been like God just tilted the earth on his axis because, you know, like what you get in Alaska, and you could have a long day. I'm just like, man, all the theories are out there, but they're just theories. We just don't know how it all worked out. But we we do know that if you come from, from an understanding of God and creation, it's possible. God does these things. If you come from an atheistic worldview, then you have questions to answer about uh, dirt, and how does dirt, given enough time, become us, and how do you answer this whole idea of purpose and life, and meaning, and love, and good, and evil, and the existence of those things, which there is no answer with an atheistic framework, because it's a deterministic thing. We're just protons and neutrons banging together, and we'll eventually stop banging together and die, and So, sorry, got off in the deep uh, weeds. Wow. Um, What's ironic is, as I was reading through all these texts, no one talked about the dynamic of the hailstones killing all these people. Isn't that interesting? Like, even as Christians, we we don't, well, yeah, that's possible because there's hailstorms. We've seen it. Isn't it funny? We can accept that more readily than we can accept God who makes a day longer because he's got it. Here's a, a thought. As I look at this, Joshua and the leaders previous week thought they had it taken care of, didn't inquire of the Lord, didn't need to stop. They just told them, we got this God. And this week the leaders are all silent. There's nobody sampling anything. They're not reading the signs instead seven different times. It's the Lord, 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 seven times. The Lord talking, the Lord acting, the Lord moving, the Lord being consulted. And before this all starts, when when God came before the victory and before the hailstorms and before the panic and before the all-night march, he comes to Joshua and it's God who starts this and he says, do not fear. I've given them into your hands, I got this. And it's in this moment, and this is the, this is the moment, guys, this is like one of these passages and stories where it, it, it's amazing, it's in this moment that Joshua sees, I think, God for who he is because you see him pray. One of the first prayers of Joshua, I think, I was trying to read back, did he ever pray like this? And I don't think he did. And he actually stops and he prays and he says, sun, stand still, moon, stand still. He prays such a prayer of faith as to reach into the cosmos to accomplish the will of God. Just reading this book called The Circle Maker. It says this, it's up on the screen. One litmus test of spiritual maturity is whether you dream dream whether your dreams are getting bigger or smaller. I'm not sure if I wrote that down yet. Yeah. The older you get, the more faith you should have because you've experienced more of God's faithfulness. It's not that our faith, it's our faith in God getting bigger. It's not that God gets bigger. It's that we see him as bigger. And Joshua, it all comes together in this moment, and he sees God, and he prays, and he says, God, I want this day to be the longest day until we win this fight, and we destroy all five armies at once. Do it. You got this, God. Can you do this, God? And God says, oh, I got this. You just watch. So God said, look, I'll give you favor. They won't be able to stand against you. And, and Joshua says, I'm going to ask for more. I want to I finish it today. Give it all to us today. There's something interesting that happens In verse 14, there's been no day like it before or since when the Lord needed heeded the voice of a man when the Lord fought for Israel. That's such a downer verse. I mean, you think about it. There's never been a day like it or before, a day when the Lord listened to man. Well, that's great for Joshua, big bummer for us. Right? I mean, that's what it says. God's not gonna listen to you. Not gonna listen to me. He's all done, apparently. That's it. Show's over. Don't listen to don't, don't go to God. He won't listen to you. He's done listening. He had his fill. What do you do with that? It's hyperbole, it's speaking and and just, isn't this so amazing, God never did this thing again, is what it more infers, made the earth stand still. But you have to interpret this verse within all of scripture. And all of scripture says something different, which then helps you understand this verse and what it's trying to do is saying, wasn't that awesome? That was like awesome. But the rest of scripture says something different. The rest of scripture says God listens. And God still moves. And you just keep going. Go past the book of Joshua into Judges and you've got all the Judges, Samson, Gideon. Other judges there. You got what God did with King Saul, with K- what what God did with King David, and all these other kings. Uh, move into the New Testament. You see the the apostles and the early church, and you look into church history, and God is still listening, and God is still working on behalf of His people. Because in the New Testament, God makes this promise in John chapter fourteen. It's part of the new covenant, right? The new covenant, and he says this, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. That's the new covenant, that's the promise. He teaches us, ask whatever you wish. If it's according to his will, he will hear us. I mean, he says it over and over again, a part of this thing. And then God's saying again and again. Jesus is saying, look, I got you. I've got you. Ask me. Ask me. Listen to me. Come to me. Pray. I have it. Let me do it. This book, um, Circle Maker, there's a story uh, the author writes about this couple, um, Wayne and Diane. This is back in the early eighties, nineteen eighty three and eighty-four. They got they were pregnant and they were so excited about it, and what they would do every night or quite often during the pregnancy is they would read scripture and promises over their child out of the Bible. And they would just keep reading those things and praying for their child and saying, Lord, take this child. We want this child to be yours and and as they were praying, they got this name, and the name was Jessica. And, and so they wrote down the name, and they're like, oh wow, okay, we're gonna have a girl. And, uh, and so they started praying for their daughter, and they were also praying for a future spouse. And, uh, and so they're praying for these things, and, and that happened in October, and in December they got another name, Timothy. And they actually, with Jessica, they had it spelled out, they had their letters, like J-E-S-S-I-C-A, and, and Timothy T, like as normally, Spelled out T-I-M-O-T-H-Y. Sorry, a little scared there to spell it out. I didn't know how to. It's like, oh, how do you spell Timothy? Uh, so they're not sure. Well, now we've got two names. What are we doing with this? Uh, maybe we didn't, did we hear God right? And what was that all about? And so the day of the birth comes in, in, uh, in May of 1984, and, and they have a baby boy. And it's, oh, it's Timothy. And so they're praying for Timothy. In 2006, about 10 years ago, their son Timothy got married, and uh, he got married to a girl named Jessica, and they never told their son that they'd gotten this name. They wrote down the name, had it in their journals, and never told them. They allowed him to date other girls not named Jessica, (laughs) (laughs) which is funny. They never never told him. It was only when he was engaged that they went back and they showed him their journals. God had come along and and given them the name of the spouse their son was going to marry. and said, pray for her. You don't think God's got this? Parents, I know you're worried about your kids. God's got them. He really does. Even when the problems and the threats and the dangers are so real and you know where things can lead, he's got them. You praying for him. That quote One of the litmus tests of spiritual maturity is whether your dreams are getting bigger or smaller. The older you get, the more faith you should have because you've experienced more of God's faithfulness. Do you see God as bigger now or not? Does he really have it or does he not? And if he does have it, are you asking him to bring it and to give it and to take it? He's got you, you think you got dreams, you think you got plans. He's got the plan. He has the dream. You know, what's interesting is this is the last miracle in the book of Joshua. There's not another miracle that happens in the book. Except what you would say, the miracle of them taking the land, which happens in the next chapters. This is the last one. And I think God's making his point. I got you. Don't be afraid. And I think watching Joshua inspired to ask for more, to pray, that's the response when we discover. And understand in greater and more complete ways who God is. The call on us to pray becomes stronger. And the drive to pray becomes greater. And you just want to say, oh, Lord, do it. Have you stopped praying because you feel like God's broken the covenant? you stop praying because you feel like God, like this passage here says, yeah, he doesn't do this anymore, God doesn't listen to people, have you stopped praying because you don't want to be disappointed, or, or maybe you just don't know whether God can do it, and I don't know, I just, uh, there's a story in here, in the circle maker, it uh I can't think of, I don't have anything around me. This guy, uh, this prophet, not a prophet, this man of God, um, he comes, and uh, Israel's in the drought. This is about 100 B.C., uh, and uh, Honi, H-O-N-I is his name, and uh, Israel's been in this massive drought, and uh, he gets into this, Town circle. I don't know what it was, but it was described that all these people were watching him, and he gets this big staff and he draws this circle and the dust, and he goes Shh, like this. And he just gets this and he does a 360. And then he kneels down in the circle and he says, Lord, I will not leave this circle until you give us your mercy. and it's said that god caused it to rain it starts to rain and people are amazed but honey doesn't stop there he's still in there in the circle rain starting to fall And it's a sprinkle. And it says that Honey wasn't satisfied with just a sprinkle of rain. And it says this, not for such rain have I prayed, but for rain that will fill cisterns and pits and caverns. And it said it turned into this torrential downpour. The rain was like the size of eggs, and it rained so heavy and steadily that people fled to the high ground, but Honi stayed in his circle. And it's said that he prayed this, not for such a rain I have prayed, but for rain of your favor, blessing, and graciousness. And it's said that then the rain started to rain like a shower, calmly, peacefully, day after day after day, quenched the ground. History says that he actually would dishonor The Sanhedrin, because that's not the way you're supposed to pray. Don't go home and draw a circle like that's the formula. But this man understood the faithfulness of God, drew a circle and said, I'm not leaving. Let's just pray. Invite the team to come up. Lord, you know what we're not asking you for. Lord, you know each one of us and where we've stopped praying. You know where each one of us in our hardest, that heart of hearts, the deepest places, doesn't think you can do it. Doesn't think you've got it. Pray that you would whisper to us like you did with Joshua. Tell us the promises of this new covenant. Show us your sacrifice, your blood, your body. Show us the resurrection that guarantees us guarantees us all the promises of the new covenant show us the promises god invite us lord draw us into prayer in the name of jesus christ i just i come against any any spirit of doubt here, disbelief, the wisdom of this world versus the wisdom of the kingdom of God. Confusion. Jesus in your name, I bind all all these workings, whether it is sin or whether it is demonic, we just bind it all right now in your name and it is done right here. Exalt yourself. Show us how great your faithfulness is. Show us you have it.